and he shall be pronounced cleansed. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Out podcast. This is part four of Leviticus. So if you are with me this far, well, congrats. I am quite impressed indeed. If you want to see more of these episodes, let me know. I figured on going through Leviticus during Lent, and Lent is coming to an end. So we have a fork in the road. Either I can keep this going and finish out the book, or I can just say, yeah, I gave you a commentary on half of Leviticus, and well, that's something. So if you want to hear more, if you want to hear this continued, even finished, well, email me at thegordianot101 at gmail.com and let me know. And if you're sick and tired of the Leviticus episodes, well, that's something I also want to know, and I'd love to hear what you'd rather be hearing on the podcast. So send any suggestions or ideas to thegordianot101 at gmail.com, or really any email. I love to hear from you guys. Always appreciate that. So episode one is a reminder that was covering voluntary offerings. Episode two was mandatory offerings. Episode three was ordinations and such. And now we are going into everybody's favorite, the purity laws. So we're going to start with some, uh, with, let's see, we're on Leviticus chapter 11 and I will be hopping around. I'm not going to read all this to you. You, you just don't need to know that much about boils. Um, so I'm going to be skipping a lot of stuff here, but I do want to read some of the clean and unclean laws because these are pretty famous and I'd say they're pretty influential and of all parts of the law that really, um, seem to have disappeared. This is really notable, right? Um, this separated out the, uh, the Hebrew people from, uh, from their neighbors. This was something that they assumed would continue into the Messianic age, and it didn't. Um, Peter was quite confused that these were being repealed, and um, I think they're a good case study in how we understand certain laws in the Old Testament and how they translate into the New Testament and why they do and why they don't, because nothing passes away until it is all fulfilled. So Christ fulfills these things. He removes the underlying need for us to follow certain laws of these. Um, And, you know, we'll get to that. But this one certainly is quite notable. Um, And we see a lot of controversy in the book of Acts about what exactly we do with this. Do we have to observe this part of the law? And they decided, well, no, just to avoid sexual immorality, uh, food sacrifice to idols and blood. And later, two of those, I assume you know which, were repealed later as per Paul's letters. Okay, without any further ado, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones that you can eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you may not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax chews the cud, but does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it does chew the cud, does not have a divided hoof. Nay, does not have a hoof at all, dear listeners. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcass, for it is unclean to you. 
And all the creatures living in the waters and the seas and the streams, you may eat all of them that have fins and scales, but the creatures of the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the living creatures in the water, you are to regard them as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you are not to eat of their meat. You must regard their carcass as unclean. Anything living in the water that does not have fins and scales is to be regarded as unclean to you. And all right, it goes on to uh, birds. So there's certain kind of birds that you can eat. Insects. You can eat some insects if they have jointed legs for hopping on the ground, but not if they walk on all fours. Um, we get more into the whole divided hoof cud thing for a bit. And, uh, yeah, you can eat a few lizards. Not many, not many. Not the gecko, not the monitor lizard, not the wall lizard, not the skink, not the chameleon. Um, wait a minute, maybe you can't eat any lizards. Okay, don't eat lizards, guys. Um, there we go. That That's pretty much, uh, that's pretty much wrapped. Don't touch their carcass. Do not eat them. They will defile you. They will make you ceremonially unclean. And it says towards the end of verse 44, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy because I am holy. So we're really pivoting into a section which is talking, well, all of Leviticus, if it needs a caption, is how to be holy. Leviticus is about holiness. It begins with sacrifice. That means that we are made holy through ordering things correctly, through the priesthood that Christ established, through giving up our, of the things we have in sacrifice, through communing with our creator. And we're pivoting slowly into laws which govern our conduct in general with the created order, with what we eat, and with other people. We'll get into those laws next episode. Um, all of these are centered around holiness, but it's difficult to see why these provisions would make one holy, because in the place where we would expect some type of explanation, we don't get one. The explanation we have is, I am the Lord your God, <laughs> right? Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I'm holy. But we don't get an explanation. So, let's provide a few. One of which is what we kind of touched on earlier and is the go-to explanation among Christians far and wide. And that is, these are meant to um, mark out the people of God and separate them from the other nations. And don't get me wrong, that is that is certainly true. And let's get into that right now. Um, communion in the Christian tradition is a meal. And communion, this common union through meals, isn't just a New Testament thing. It goes all the way back to the old. We see time and time again when strangers come into town, when visitors are upon you, when relatives come near, when whenever people are together in, in the uh, culture throughout scripture, there's a meal of some type. Um, that's a way that we, we come into communion with other people. But if you can't eat the same things, then you can't be participating in the same meal. So it is actually a very targeted strike against union with the people who inhabited the land before them. And these people were particularly, specifically wicked and needed to be rooted out. They were given generation after generation to repent of their wickedness. And even after the Hebrew people came into the promised land, though they have not yet in Leviticus, we're getting them ready, um, 
they're in the desert at this point. Um, even once they do arrive, God still allows them to join the nation of Israel um, if they want to worship the the uh, the one true God. So this is always an offer of communion, not just with neighbor, but with God. But he puts this um, this law about the clean and unclean food to divide people from um, making friends with those who would corrupt them. So that's a big one. Uh, there's a, uh, there's in social science, oh goodness, social science, but there's a, um, there's a phrase called the minority veto, also called the vegetarian veto, and I like that term a little bit better. Um, that's where when a small minority of people who have like a, a set ironclad um, preference can change a majority to act in line with, um, with their unique preference. I like the vegetarian veto. Because that's like uh, if you're at the office or if you're amongst friends or, or something. And one or two people are vegetarian in the entire group. If you're ordering in general or deciding where you all are going to eat, well, then you have to accommodate these people whether you like it or not. Because they just say, I will not eat meat. So that means they have to get a vegetarian option or go somewhere where there is a vegetarian option. So it's been, it's been noted that this minority veto can actually steer the course of very large groups. So when we have the Hebrew people coming into the land, uh, God's setting up a bit of a vegetarian veto that some of the things which are mentioned that they eat are eaten um, in the context of all sorts of evil sacrifices. Uh, oftentimes, when you have a meal, it is associated with the sacrifice. And we see this up in the New Testament, where we have food sacrificed to idols. I mean, why not just have it do double duty, make it a sacrifice and make it a meal? So uh, some of these creatures are are meant to be sacrifices to evil gods. So we're doing the vegetarian veto to try to move this whole culture away from that. Um, another reason, as we have talked about uh, in a former episode, is... Uh, my pet theory, but I I have heard that I have support from uh, uh, Hans Urs van Balthasar and a couple other theologians who I've I've forgotten, but I, I need to look up and find those references for you. Basically, an earlier episode I point out that Lucifer is uh, seems to be the angelic governor of nature. He's even called the prince of this world or the god of this world, and we're told that. A lot of the angels which were under his hierarchy were the ones who fell. It kind of makes sense, right? They're being led by this evil angel, and a lot in that hierarchy fell. And we have, we gave, I think, 11 different reasons for this, so you can go back and, and hear those reasons. But um, it does make sense that if that's where a lot of angels fell from, and if Thomas Aquinas is right, and he typically is, that creatures have angelic governors— then that would mean that the angelic governors for animals, the vast majority of them, are at this point in salvation history governed by an evil angel, an evil angelic governor of some point, of some type. And then the minority would be by unfallen angels. So I suggest, and uh, you, know, you could take a lot of what I say with a grain of salt, I seek to inform, but I try to let you know when I'm kind of steering out of my own here, I think it's very possible that the clean animals are ones with an angelic governor and the unclean are ones with a demonic governor. 
So why do these laws go away in the new covenant? Well, because the reason for them goes away, right? And the reason that it goes away is because Satan is cast down. It says that it looks like he fell as if with lightning and all, all the stars are falling down, the stars representing the angels, right? So they're knocked from their place. And we have tradition saying that the saints actually take the place of those fallen angels. And the book of Psalms even has a, um, oh, I should have pulled up that reference. Well, I'm remembering it now. But um, the book of Psalms even has a, uh, a reference to that type of replacement of the evil powers um, by, the, by the good man. So uh, it could be that after Satan is knocked out, the strong man is overcome by the even stronger man, Jesus himself then the reason behind this separation of the animals no longer applies. And thus, Peter gets that image. It says, take, kill, and eat. Um, all right, so those are, uh, those are a couple reasons. The next chapter goes into purification after childbirth. And I'll read a few sections here. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman should wait uh, 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of the purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter for two weeks, the woman will be unclean as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. And it goes on a little bit. We have a sacrifice of the burnt offering and a sin offering upon the birth of either a, uh, a male or a female child. Um, okay. So these are the laws which Mary and Joseph were obeying in, I believe it's Luke, where they're told that they give two young pigeons. Because if you don't have enough for a lamb, it says you can do two young pigeons or doves, right? That's what they're doing. And Joseph was probably pretty darn poor after having to abandon his business multiple times and flee to different countries and then rebuild it likely in his old age. Um, another thing I want to point out, well, there's a number of things I want to point out. For my Protestant listeners who deny infant baptism, uh, note that if you read this in Leviticus chapter 12, we have a sin offering in like right after the kid is born, and this is meant to be a remedy for their sin. And also a burnt offering, and burnt offerings, as we learned in the earlier episode, represent the pledging of allegiance to God. And what is baptism? It's a removal of sin, and it's a marking of one as having a new allegiance to God. Not just an allegiance um, in a weak way, but in a covenantal way, in a way which brings you into the very family of God. Also note we have a circumcision on the eighth day. Um, and uh, yeah, that's explicitly replaced by baptism in the new covenant. So if circumcision is on the eighth day, it's as a little tiny infant, and baptism replaces circumcision, then we should expect that baptism should be very early on. Heck, maybe even on the eighth day if you get the little guy over there. But what is this whole thing about the woman being unclean? Oh my goodness, I can hear the feminists shrieking why the Bible is so misogynistic and patriarchal and whatever words are are trendy to say to deride sacred scripture these days. But no, that's totally not the point. That's ridiculous. Um, instead, as has been pointed out by um, 
by plenty of people, uh, not just me. These are actually all in place to protect the woman. Why? Because I've never given birth, um, but I'm told it's not fun. And uh, you probably want a wild arrest and not have to do anything and just plain old recover. And if you say, hey, it's optional that women get to recover if they want, well, then they could be pressured by their husband or their employer or their relatives to get back into the community doing things. But guess what? They don't want to. Give her a rest. She just bore a child. Give her a long time to just recover. Um, And that's exactly what scripture says. It says, hey, great news. Uh, uh, Ladies, you are now unclean. You know what that means? You don't have to participate in the stuff in the sanctuary. You don't have to participate in work. You don't have to go out into the community. You can literally sit back and relax. And if anybody tells you that you have to go and do something like this, you can tell them, thus saith the Lord, the law prescribes me to be right here because I am unclean. Don't you come over and even touch me. Go away. So this, like um, like a lot of sections of the law, has a result which it's aiming at, and it achieves it very, very well. Um, this isn't meant to just say that um, that women are bad or, or giving birth is, is unclean or sinful. That's, of course, ridiculous. We're commanded to go forth and, and multiply. Instead, this is aiming at giving people rest, in light of the hardships that they legitimately go through and separating people off in this way such that they can recover. All right. Um, Another thing I want to point out is there is a sin offering associated with this. And why? Why is it because the woman is sinful because of her whatever bodily functions? No, dear little feminists, it is not that. Instead, it is linked to the penitential act of giving birth. Recall all the way back in Genesis, after the first sin, Adam and Eve are both given a penance. And a penance is a means of defeating sin. It's a way that we act against evil to undo the results of evil. So Adam was given laboring among the thorns to bring us bread so that we can live. That was the male way of laboring. And Jesus fulfills that, of course, in his passion, crowned by thorns. His labor of redeeming us is amid the thorns. And through his sacrifice, he brings about the Eucharistic bread that then feeds us. So that's how he fulfills this. So all the way back in the Old Testament, women are doing their part of um, this original penance. So there, oh, and by the way, in Jesus's labor, he is specifically said to, quote, become sin, which of course does not mean that he is sinful in any way. Instead, that's just a way of talking about he is a sin offering, right? So he becomes that sin offering for us in this act of penance to undo the effects of sin, to make us holy. So that's the male way of doing the penance. What's being shown here is that women can participate in the redemption um, of mankind through their penance, right? God extends to us a sliver of his cross, and this is the way that women do. They do it by um, the pain of childbirth, is uh, is what Genesis says. So it's rightly paired with a sin offering, Because it's penitential. It's a way of atoning for sin. 
The early church fathers note that when Mary is at the base of the cross, she has that uh, sword piercing her heart. She is in agony for her son dying. So they point out that she did not have pain in the birth of Jesus, but she gets the pain of childbirth instead at the birth of the church where Jesus is dying and the blood and water spill from his side, right? His side is opened up just like Adam's is opened up when the rib is removed to create his bride, the church. Well, um, well, his bride Eve and then Jesus' side is opened up to create his bride, the church, through the two principal sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. So Mary is there and in pain with this uh, spiritual version of participating in the birth of the church. So where was I going with all this? Basically, if it's a penance, it's rightly linked with a sin offering. Jesus did our penance, toiling amongst thorns to bring about bread, and he links this with the sin offering of himself. And all the way back in Leviticus, women are doing the penitential act of bringing about the next generation of giving birth, even in pain. So they rightly pair this in the law with a sin offering. Now, it doesn't mean the woman's sinful any more than that would mean that Jesus is sinful. <laughs> because, oh goodness, yes. All right. I think that part is pretty clear. But I often hear this more feminist critique. And uh, if you just think that the law is misogynistic and God is mean to, to women and stuff, I think that you need to read uh, a little bit more carefully. God created man and woman in his image. He doesn't like one more than the other. So moving on to chapter 13. These are regulations about everybody's favorite, defiling skin diseases. So the interpretive key for all of what we're going to be reading is um, that these skin diseases sometimes rendered serrat, if you read the King James, or I think it's in the Do They Reams too. Um, these are meant to be an outward sign of a spiritual problem. So the, the, uh, the remedies which are applied can also be mapped on to our spiritual lives. Much of what goes on in the Old Testament is like a physical acting out of what becomes spiritual in the new. Like, a chief example of that would be Exodus. They literally cross the Red Sea. Their enemies are literally destroyed by water. And ours are too, but it's the um, passing through the baptismal waters and our sins are destroyed. So there's a physical manifestation of what becomes a spiritual reality um, in the next covenant. And this is no exception. So, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when anyone has a swelling or a rash or a shiny spot on their skin, that could be a defiling skin disease. They must be brought to Aaron, the priest, or to one of his sons who is a priest. The priest is to examine the sore on the skin, and if the hair in the, in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it is a defiling skin disease. When the priest examines the person, he shall pronounce them ceremonially unclean. If the shiny spot on the skin is turned white, but does not appear to be more than skin deep, and the hair is not turned white, the priest is to isolate the affected person for seven days. On the seventh day, if the priest is to examine them, and he sees that the sore is unchanged and has not spread in the skin, he is to isolate them for another seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine 
them again, and if the sore is faded and is not spread to the skin, the priest shall pronounce them clean. It is only a rash. They must wash their clothes, and they will be clean. But if the rash does not spread in the skin after they have shown themselves to the priest to be pronounced clean, they must appear before the priest again. The priest is to examine that person, and if the rash has spread to the skin, he shall pronounce them unclean, for it is a defiling skin disease. So this tells us a few things. One, here in the Old Covenant, um, these diseases, which represent a uh, problem with the interior condition of our hearts here in the New Covenant, these are given ample time for healing. I think we, we absolutely need to learn about this. We are not angels that make one choice instantaneously for or against God at the moment of our creation. We are set in time. We are, we are given bodies, right? We are, indwe- we are material creatures and spiritual. But that means that we have the principle of potential, material, that we inhabit with our spirits, with our spirits such that we move in one way and then another, that we take one step forward and two steps back. Um, we are in progress, and we will be until the end of time, until we meet heaven or hell. Um, and that's a wonderful thing. That means that God allows time for us to change, time for us to repent, time for healing of our sins and of our wounds. And we ought to give people this benefit because we can't change all at once. None of us can. And we have to be patient with ourselves. Maybe you have some type of besetting sin and you think to yourself, ah, and this day I'm going to no longer be angry with my neighbor, no longer lust, no longer lie, no longer fill in the blank. But look, the law, the law was hard, right? But even the law um, gives ample time for healing. It understands that we have wounds, that they can spread, and that we ought to give people a time for this to heal. And note, this is in uh, connection with the priest, Don't think, well, I'm sure I'll be fine of this sin. I guess I'll just wait it out. No, 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 no. These people are coming to the priest. They're being examined by the priest. They are showing, honestly, their wounds and failures to the priest. This is analogous in the New Covenant to confession, whereby we do exactly that spiritually. Um, That is part of um, the healing process, is being examined by the priest. Also, we see that there is isolation, not just to give time for healing, but there's isolation from others. Why? Well, sometimes we need to isolate our sin from others. Um, There are times when you know, as well as I do, that if we go and deal with other people, we will probably prompt them to sin. Maybe we are extraordinarily angry or frustrated or, or whatever. And you need to recognize that you have something which is contagious and out of mercy to others you need to isolate yourself from them. Um, Let's see. There's also ways that we, this is in the context of the society in general, the being in or outside, the being isolated or being brought back in. We, We require some type of proof that people have indeed been healed before we fully accept them back into the community. Um... And I, I think that works in churches. I think that works in families. I don't think that's unkind or uncharitable. This is baked into the law. You're not required to just always accept people back into your life if they have 
done terrible, evil things, and they're spreading their wickedness. If they are contagious with sin and wickedness, then that is very good reason to not have people in your life. We would require proof that they have indeed changed in order to bring them back into these communities, lest the community itself be infected. That is a biblical spiritual principle, which will allow for holiness to thrive in the community instead of sinfulness to pervade it. The Apostle Paul even talks about uh, casting people out of the the assembly and handing them over to Satan. So this is something we're really not comfortable. We like to live in an age of tolerance, of live and let live, but we do have to draw lines sometimes for the good of the people as a whole, for the good of the church as a whole, for the good of the family as a whole. But let's keep reading. When anyone has a defiling skin disease, they must be brought to the priest. The priest is to examine them. If there's a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and if there is raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic disease, and the priest shall pronounce them unclean. He is not to isolate them because they are already unclean. So, uh, if the disease is chronic, they're unclean but not isolated. You know what this reminds me of? Here, here's what I think is the the um, application to us. Have you ever met a uh, like a really gruff, um, just generally unlikable old man in your church? Somebody with just a generally off-putting personality. We have to discern whether or not this is an active sin, something that that they are are consenting to in opposition to God, that the community ought to act against, to react to, to try to set them aright, to put them on the path of holiness. Um, in other words, should we be isolating this person? Should we? How should we act towards this person? Should we push them out of our community because of this? Um, or is this a chronic disposition? Because there are some people with chronic dispositions which are analogous to a raw flesh. (laughs) It is objectionable, um, it is unlikable, and yes, it is unclean, but it does not call for them being shunned or isolated despite their behavior. Um, It does take discernment, right? This person has to be examined by the priest, and it is still a priestly role to know when and uh, where to, to isolate and when and where to um, allow people back in. Just because somebody is difficult to deal with, the raw flesh of, of just our fallen nature is, is exposed. Just because of that doesn't mean that you can, you can break off contact with somebody. So if you thought that what I said earlier could be applied to, say, an off-putting family member, well, not quite. If you're making an isolation because their sin will be spreading, affecting other people and harming the innocent, okay, isolation can make sense. But if this is something chronic, it's built into them, and it's just unclean and unlikable, that's not call for isolation. If the disease breaks out all over their skin, and so far as the priest can see, it covers the skin of the affected person from head to foot, the priest is to examine them. And if the disease has covered their whole body, he shall pronounce them clean. I feel like I have commented on this passage in a former episode. I think this is really interesting. One, it does mirror baptism in a sense, because that's when death sweeps over us, where the effect of sin, which is death, goes over us head to toe, and we emerge, quote, white as snow. Um, I think the white as snow actually can 
reference this part of Leviticus, though there's also sections in Isaiah which um, which echo this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Why is it that when the disease covers your whole body, you're pronounced clean? That that sounds ridiculous. That sounds completely counterintuitive. How on earth do we understand this? Well, here's what I suggest. Um, if you have a healthy body and yet you are harboring some type of disease, in other words, you have a healthy soul, but you are harboring some type of sin, then maybe you should be isolated. Maybe you are unclean. For instance, if you are going to Mass, receiving the sacraments, and yet you are not healing from some type of wound, well, there could be a reason for that. It could be that you actually have a will which is not entirely turned against your sin. Instead, you are actively harboring it. And that's a problem. But if you're somebody who has had this disease of sin sweep over their entire body from head to foot, well, then we just accept you into the community. An example. Let's say there's a, uh, there's a man in your church who is actively committing adultery. Now, he is a, a, he is a Christian. He's all that stuff, whatever. And maybe he's exemplary in many other ways. Well, he needs to be put out of the community until he repents of that sin. He is unclean. He is to be isolated, broken off until he breaks free of that sin. But on the other hand, if you find a prostitute who's just, I don't know, living in an alley next to your church, you know what you do? You invite them to church. You bring them into the community. That's the point where the disease of sin has swept over their whole body and you just, you just pull them right in. This is not the time to isolate. Jesus didn't do that. He went to be in community with the tax collectors and the sinners. He understood that sin has swept over their entire bodies. And that's the point where hopefully at that point in humility, they enter back into the congregation to be made whole again. They're not harboring type of, some type of sin in their will. They have been entirely overcome and destroyed by it, at which point they need to be brought in for our mercy. Back to the text. Since it is all turned white, they are clean. But whenever raw flesh appears on them, they will be unclean. When the flesh, when this priest sees the raw flesh, he shall pronounce them unclean. The raw flesh is unclean. They have a defiling disease. If the raw flesh changes and turns white, they must go to the priest. The priest is to examine them. And if the sores have turned white, the priest shall pronounce the affected person clean, and they will be clean. This may be what is being referenced uh, by Paul. Paul uses the language of the, the flesh, which is rising up in him, right? So he has been washed clean through baptism. He has been fully converted, right? There's, there's some baptismal analogies here, which we talked about earlier. Um, and yet there's this resurgence of the flesh, resurgence of the old man. I think Paul, who was a Pharisee, who knew his law very well, might be referencing this section, the resurgence of the raw flesh, at which point that needs to be turned white again, that needs to be healed, that needs to be made new. Um, moving on to, we have boils. And I am not going to read you all of the stuff about boils because, who knows, maybe you are driving in the car and you're, you're, eating, a, uh, you're eating some fast food or something and you do not want to hear about boils. You didn't even want to hear about... Uh, skin diseases. So let's just say that we have something kind of similar. We have um, the examination by the priest. 
we have a variety of different instances with white flesh and reddish flesh and defiling skin diseases and, and things as one would expect. And then we end with a section that says anyone with such a defiling skin disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkept, cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Now, that's pretty terrifying. You're alone. You're outside of the camp. You're unclean, and you're in this terrible state of humiliation. That does show the severity of sin. This is to protect the physical body, the physical communion of God's people. How much more should we be interested in protecting the spiritual communion of, uh, of the faithful? few interesting things. One, they're meant to wear torn clothes. We will talk a little bit later about some uh, um, regulations about clothes, but clothes represent the ways in which we cover our shame. Think back to Genesis. God gave Adam and Eve clothes because they were ashamed. But we're supposed to tear this. We're supposed to be ashamed. And when we have sin, when we have these defiling diseases, it is the proper response to feel shame. Shame is not always bad. That can be a sign to yourself, heck, to others, that what you have done is wrong, that your sin is messed up, like your hair, which ought to be unkept, it says. Um, and finally, you're to cry out, unclean, unclean. What's that mean in our current covenant age? I think that means we need to be honest with other people about our own mistakes, Often we, we look at our entire life and we go back and editorialize and we decide that every single decision was fully justified when it's just plain old not. Very few of you listeners have lived an entirely holy life. Um, a lot of times in our life, we ought to be shouting, unclean, unclean, don't do this. Don't participate in this sin. This is a failing I had. Tear your clothes. Let your hair be unkept. We need to be honest to other people about sins which we have encountered. Um, another thing which is interesting. As we've read time and time again now, it is the priest that uh, is rightfully dividing the infectious from the simply infected, the clean from the unclean. This is still the job of the priest. So if you are, say, I don't know, a, a Pope Francis, you need to look at, say, the infectious German bishops, which have a defiling sin disease, which they are actively spreading and destroying their community with. And you need to isolate them, declare them unclean, and then you need to inform them that they ought to feel shame, tear their garments, and declare that, you know what? We are wrong. They need to recant, shout, unclean, unclean. And we need to send them to live alone, to live outside of the camp so that they cannot spread their evil. If you're a bishop, you need to, um, you need to have some courage, let's say, and uh, you need to excommunicate people who are in your diocese that are obviously doing evil. Uh, of course, the, the examples that come up are political, and that's fair. The Joe Bidens, the Nancy Pelosi's, obviously. Any person who's advocating for the killing of the unborn, uh, of course, 
you need to ex- excommunicate these people, obviously. That's medicinal. Um, priests, in your community, you need to rightfully divide the, the infectious from the infected. The people who have um, chronic problems and are objectionable and unlikable from people who are harboring sin in a way that it can become contagious. You need to divide the unclean from the clean. You need to do the work of the Levitical priest. Why? Because that's your job. (laughs) And it's going to be uncomfortable. And it will make you unpopular. And guess what? That's just what you signed up for. Uh, You are meant to... You are called in the Catholic Church, a father, one who's supposed to protect. The father doesn't just let anybody just walk into their house, just let evil people walk into the house, just let a drug dealer just stroll into your house. You're meant to be a door to your house, to say no to some people and yes to other people. Not just to be exclusionary, but because you love what's inside of your home. So priests, if you love your church, Do your job. Separate the clean from the unclean. Same with bishops. Same with popes. You might think that it's just random Jake the podcaster telling them what to do, but no, it's not. It's Moses. All right. Regulations about defiling molds. As for any fabric that is spoiled with a defiling mold or woolen or linen clothing and any woven or knitted material out of linen or wool or leather or etc etc if you get a mold and it is greenish or reddish it's a defiling mold show it to the priest da, 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 lots of things about defiling mold and you got to burn it there you go so that's the solution we got to burn it but if the priest examines and the mold has not spread in the fabric um, then it can be washed so it did. And yeah, there you go. So we have washing, we have burning. That's what to do with, um, with those such things. So this is the first category. We have ourselves. The second category, we have our coverings, which is our clothing. And soon we will get to our homes, buildings themselves. These are the three which can have these defiling illnesses. So we have the skin diseases, We have the mold on the clothing, and then we have this uh, mold or other types of things, the sarat, sarat, I believe it's actually the same word in Hebrew for all of these categories that affects our homes. (coughs) So, as we talked about earlier, clothes are what keep us from shame and embarrassment. So, what... What does this mean here? It means that we are we are marked with a, a defect in this, that there's a defect in the mode of covering of our shame. Now, what's the prescription here? Well, we have patience, right? Uh, one, one option here that I don't think I read to you is that you can just wait it out and hope it goes away, right? Um, maybe this is just requires some amount of patience that the mold will go away from your clothing. We have the isolate the clothing and wash it solution. And finally, we have the burn it with fire solution. So we're going to be analyzing this particularly, um, well, no, let's skip that part. 
let's let, yeah, let's zero in on these these things here. Patience. What does this mean with patience? Well, maybe in some way you're you're struggling with a sin of some type. A lot of people get so bent out of shape. Why I need to be perfect today? Well, guess what? You're not going to be. Chillax a little bit. Go talk to your priest. Start being patient with your patient with yourself, and embrace the road to healing. We are all sinners, and none of us will make ourselves saints tomorrow. So, with the shame that you experience, whatever it is—maybe it's anger, lust, or pride, or anything that's causing shame of some type. Here, Leviticus is saying that when you have a defect in your mode of covering your shame, which we all have some type, patience is one of the first things that we need to apply to this problem. Next one is the isolation and the washing. This could take the form of breaking yourself off from people and influences that support shameful sins and that means breaking yourself off from certain communities. So maybe you are a Catholic Christian and you are also in the community of, I don't know, um, homosexual uh, people. Well, that's a, that's a sin. You need to isolate yourself from, from these effects, from communities which are not conducive to your holiness. And you need to wash yourself, wash yourself in prayer, in penance, in scripture, in work, in study, in almsgiving, in other cleansing activities. That's always a cure for sin. Break yourself off, isolate yourself from people who will draw you into sin, and wash yourself in the holy activities given to you for your sanctification. And the last one is that if all else fails, burn this garment with fire which shows that we ought to be radical in the ways that we get rid of sin from our lives. And Jesus supports this. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, right? That, I think, is the equivalent with burn it with fire. All right. More on defiling skin diseases. The Lord said to Moses, these are the regulations for any diseased persons at the time of their ceremonially cleansing, when they are brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. If they have been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over the fresh water in the clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it, together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop, into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the defiling disease, and then pronounce them clean. After that, he is to release the live bird into the open field." Somewhere, I did a bunch of commentary on this section. Where, I do not know. Um, but a few things that pop out is, one, Jesus goes outside of the camp for our purification. Uh, next, we have uh, the, uh, the ascension of this dove is meant to, uh, I think, mirror the ascension of Christ. I think there's an early church father who mentioned that. Um, we have the creation of the living water. That's explicitly talked about um, when Christ speaks to the woman at the well, for example. Uh, 
somebody who is outside of the camp of the Lord, right? So this is a Samaritan woman. She's outside of the camp. And then our high priest, Jesus, goes outside and talks to this person, discusses their sin. In other words, examines them. And then offers her living water. So what type of living water? Well, the type that bubbles up into her as eternal life. That's something that comes ultimately from Christ. Why? Because he takes the place of this bird who is killed and uh, killed over the, the um, fresh water in the clay pot. What does that mean? The clay pot often represents, as like Paul would talk about, um, human nature. So it's Christ as divine is killed and associates himself with this uh, human nature in the form of this, quote, clay pot. He dips down into death itself, because this bird is dipped down into it, with the cedar wood. So this is Christ's work in the cross. Um, the scarlet yarn, which has been an analogy for the um, running thread throughout salvation history, leading up to the salvific work of Christ. And the hyssop, which is present both at the Day of Atonement, which we'll read about soon, um, and at the cross where the hyssop is uh, brought up to Christ on the cross. Um, so yeah, we have Christ fulfilling that and offering um, the effects of his salvation to this woman outside of the camp in a very priestly role. And then we have the, uh, the bird which is dipped in this, which rises up and is meant to fly off. And this mirrors, right, the ascension. Let's see, let's see. I know there's more things about this, but I don't remember them. I don't even remember what episode I went into this, but it's ringing a lot of bells. I think that this one is one that I would highly suggest meditating on um, because there's a lot of um, stuff in the New Testament, which I think is, uh, is foreshadowed here. Though in the Old Testament, we have the story of uh, Naaman, the Assyrian, remember, uh, he's a he's a general in the Assyrian arm, army. The Assyrians are certainly the bad guys. He comes over to Israel. He says, I need to be cured of leprosy. I heard you got prophets and whatnot. I guess he hears from his, his servant girl about this. And he's sent off to Elijah. And Elijah's just still, I don't know, hanging out at home. Uh, and uh, his servant comes out and is like, yo, Elijah said, uh, go to the Jordan and uh, dunk seven times and you'll be good to go. Well, why does he say that? Well, it's because Leviticus says that um, that uh, to be killed over the fresh water, seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the defiling disease and then pronounce them clean. After that, he is to release the live bird in the open fields. This is one way to get what's called living water. You can just take any water and then do the whole bird thing with the blood and the dipping and whatnot. But a river or a suitably large lake also count as living water. So the Jordan River would count as living water. And here in Leviticus, the way to be cured of this type of leprosy is to um, be dipped seven times in this water. And that's exactly what Elijah says. What I think that tells us is that we ought to seek out the ordinary things before the extraordinary things, the things which are prescribed are ready before we look for the new and novel. Some people think, well, how do I get over this sin or that sin or 
Or how do I get closer to God? Well, maybe it's a new uh, novena I'll pray. Maybe I need a new divine or uh, holy medal or, or something. Or You know what? Maybe it's love God, love neighbor. Go to Mass. Go to confession. Give alms. Pray, work, study. All the regular things. Maybe it's pray the rosary. Maybe it's read scripture. Maybe it's the regular things, which we already have clearly written before we have to have the extraordinary things. The Nahum, the Assyrian, says, wait a minute, I thought that the prophet would come out and wave his hands about or something, which I think is a great description um, of looking for the extraordinary, looking for the sensational, looking for what seems magical or impressive. But instead, Scripture often tells us that we're to look to the ordinary means of grace. Stop right here, take a break, and then we're going to pick right back up um, with a few more comments on this and pivot to the next chapter. All righty. So, um, I think the same goes for more than just sin problems. Oftentimes, people wonder about what to do with the depression or mental illness or even physical illness and things like that. Now, sometimes you might need the extraordinary, somebody to wave their hands, or you might need, you know, pharmaceuticals or this or that. But I think what this shows, what the story of Naaman shows, um, is that we should try the normal. Are you getting enough sleep? No? Okay, do that. Are you eating a healthy diet? No? Okay, do that. Are you exercising? No? Okay, well, do that. Are you seeking social connections? No? Okay, do that. Um, are you doing, uh, are you doing work? Are you working hard? No. Okay. Do that. Are you praying? No. Okay. Do that. Oftentimes. Um, yeah, we, uh, we want to do the new and novel, not the boring, ordinary stuff. So this section goes on. What do you do after you, you do this part, which, uh, represents Christ's coming work. You get cleansed seven times with the, uh, with the living water. You watch the bird rise up to heaven. Um, as a symbolic of your hope to one day rise again through the effects of Christ's cleansing work. Well, verse 8 tells us, The person is to be cleansed, must wash their clothes, shave all their hair, and bathe with water. Then they will be ceremonially clean. After this, they may come into the camp, but they must stay outside their tent for seven days. On the seventh day, they must shave off all their hair, and they must shave their head, their beard, their eyebrows, and the rest of their hair. They must wash their clothes and bathe themselves with water, and they will be clean. On the eighth day, they must bring two male lambs and one ewe lamb, a year old, each without defect, along with three-tenths of an ephod of the finest flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, and one log of oil. The priest who pronounces them clean shall present both the one to be cleansed and their offering before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, this all happens on the eighth day, right? So the seventh day, they have all this kind of stuff shaved off. And then on the eighth day, they're coming to do the sacrificial act in light of the fact that they've already purified themselves. They go to gain God's purification through this sacrificial act. What's important about the eighth day? What did we just read about the eighth day? Well, the eighth day is the point where a baby boy is circumcised and an offering is made to him. 
So what's happening to this leper who is cleansed? And by the way, we are all, in a sense, spiritual lepers. Well, they're being re-included into the covenant. Why? Because the eighth day is the day of circumcision, the day that that child becomes part of the covenant community. So this is recalling birth. So babies, not entirely hairless, but (laughs) they don't have much hair, right? And this person shaves all of their head. They look like a baby. And then they come back in. It's like they're being, I don't know, born again after being dunked in the living water. Gee, wonder if there's something about that in the new covenant. And next, this eighth day represents the start of a new creation week. Um, Behold, we are a new creation because we have been baptized and we are raised to life again, right? That's a, if you ever read Paul, you'll certainly know what I'm talking about there. Okie dokie. Um, the priest does his thing with all that stuff, slaughters things and whatnot, and then does something that you might not expect, but you will remember from last episode, the ordination episode. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of their right hand, and on the big toe of their right foot. And the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it on the palm of his own left hand, dip his right forefinger into the oil in the palm, and his finger sprinkle it uh, before the Lord seven times. And then they they mark with the, the oil as well. What does this mean? Well, as we learned earlier, this is marking them, that is the priests in ordination through this almost identical ceremony are called a wave offering. It means that they are being offered to the Lord, presented to the Lord in this particular way. Um, so why does this happen to people who are cleansed of leprosy? Well, I think it's because those who were redeemed, those who are born again, um, have a uniquely priestly role. If you know many uh, converts, or if you know many people who have uh, uh, reverted back to the faith because they they uh, left the covenant community and they, they went into terrible sin, when they come back, they often have a special role in... Um, in in uh, in the community, right? Paul says that uh, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Um, so I think that there's a unique priestly role in light of being bought back, being ransomed from sin. It's not something we're supposed to seek out, but it does seem to be an effect that uh, that we see. Um, and certainly, examples like Peter. Peter sins, but then he's brought back into this elevated high priestly role afterwards. He's um, uh, installed as the good shepherd upon Christ's resurrection, um, the shepherd of uh, Christ's sheep. So that's what I think it's pointing towards, the idea that when uh, we are healed of our sin, that we're meant to go out and remove sin from the world. We're meant to uh, mediate for the sake of others, to help other people to avoid such sins like a priest is supposed to, to be that door to keep sin out from our communities. Why? Because we know it better than almost anyone else. We've been bought back from that place. 
All right, we're going to skip a wee bit here. Uh, verses 19 to 32. Because um, it's actually kind of repetitive. Um, and let's jump to defiling molds in one's house. So we talked about the person themselves twice. Um, we talked about the clothes. Now we're going into um, the place that you're actually living, your home. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when you enter the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as a possession, and I put a spreading mold in a house in that land, the owner of the house must go and tell the priest, I have something that looks like a defiling mold in my house. The priest is to order the house to be emptied before he goes in and examine the mold so that nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. After this, the priest is to go in and reinspect the house. He is to examine the mold on the walls, and if it has a greenish or reddish depressions that appear to be deeper than the surface of the wall, the priest shall go out the doorway of the house and close it up for seven days. Now recall, this is like weirdly similar to the skin. We have the depression. Um, we, this is very similar to the problems with your clothes, the greenish or reddish mold. And we also have this first step of isolation, the uh, close it up for seven days. On the seventh day, the, pr the priest shall return to reinspect the home. If the home has spread, if the mold has spread on the walls, he is to order that the, the contaminated stones be torn out and thrown into an unclean place outside the town. He must have all the inside walls scraped and the material that is scraped off dumped into an unclean place outside the town. They are to take other stones to replace them and take new clay and plaster the house. If the defiling mold reappears in the house after the stones have been torn out and the house scraped and plastered, the priest is to go and examine it. And if the mold has spread in the house, it is persistent. Defiling mold, the house is unclean. It must be torn down, its stones and timbers and all the plasters, and taken out of town to an unclean place. Anyone who goes into the house while it is closed up will be unclean till evening. Anyone who sleeps or eats in the house must wash their clothes. But if the priest comes to examine it and the mold has not spread after the house has been plastered, he shall pronounce the house clean because the defiling mold is gone. To purify the house, he is to take two birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. He shall kill one of the birds over fresh water in a clay plot. He then is to take the cedar wood, the hyssop, the scarlet yarn, and the live bird, dip them into the blood of the dead bird and the fresh water, and sprinkle the house seven times. He shall purify the house with the bird's blood, the fresh water, the live bird, the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the scarlet yarn. Then he is to release the live bird in the open fields outside of the, uh, the town. In this way, he will make atonement for the house, and it will be clean. Now, as a licensed home inspector, a contractor, a home renovator, as one who has read the uh, International Maintenance Code. Um, this is not how we today deal with mold problems. Um, instead, we have fixes which are far less intrusive than, than this, or as most people would wish they would be. Spray bleach on it and paint it or else cover it with drywall, and it shall be cleansed. That, that, that's what we currently do, guys, with houses. But this has spiritual, not just physical, significance. Um, we don't think much about houses, about structures sometimes. We like them, we use them, we appreciate them. But we ought to note the spiritual significance 
Before God came to us to be incarnate in mankind, he came to dwell in a temple, in a tabernacle. That's where he wanted to make his presence known. That's where he shekinahed before he shekinahed um, in the Virgin Mary's womb. So first he came to a building. Isn't that wild? Isn't that strange? Doesn't that also, in a sense, give a dignity to the things that we build? But these represent, in a sense, the church in the way that we ought to remove the stones even in the church if they will not be scraped clean. There's this type of discipline first and then a removal. Right? Judas is an example of one who is removed. The apostles are called foundations, um, stones in the temple, and Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation of foundations for our church. But we ought to uninstall those from the priestly office. We have to uninstall laity. Um, yes, this is a very excommunication-heavy episode, but it's important. We ought to have mercy, but we also have to have some type of um, we have to have mercy on the sinner by removing them from their sin because this isn't just a, uh, a preference. This is a, um, this is a life or death issue. Spiritual life or death, I might add. Um, let's see. A lot of this overlaps with the, uh, the clothing and the skin problems. But um, I think this one in particular, houses are where we set up our lives and uh, we're expected to scrape our lives clean of sin, even to completely renovate our lives, to put in new clay and new plaster, to literally remove the stones out of our house, remove the basic big things in our lives if they cannot be made clean. We like our comfortable lives, but there are times where we have to un un uproot them. The Holy Family models this and having to move all the way to Egypt to uproot themselves, to tear apart their whole lives for the sake of um, obedience to God. And sometimes we have to too. That means standing up against uh, culture. That means uh, um, speaking out against uh, evils which are going on, even if that's going to affect our jobs, uh, our place in the community, etc. So I think that got us to that got us to chapter 15. So we're going to be closing up on this one. Um, and then we're going to be off to next episode, which is going to be uh, atonement, um, day of atonement, things like that. Here, I am going to be skipping over lots of verses. This is talking a lot about bodily discharges. And if you didn't want to hear about the other things, you definitely don't want to hear about bodily discharges, but specifically bodily discharges um, relating to reproduction for men and women. Now, um, we have a, a uh, burnt offering that we are, uh, in this section, we have a burnt offering that uh, involves, uh, and a sin offering, which involves a earthen vessel's when, uh, th which has blood poured in them and then has to be broken, or the blood from the burnt or the sin offering, if it gets to a bronze vessel, has to be washed and scoured. Um, and yet the flesh of the sin offering, and I believe the burnt offering it said also, is holy. And we have a lot of talk about blood which is coming out of, of flesh here. So what on earth does this have to do with all this? Well, it means that... Um, 
uh, we represent, uh, we are represented by earthen vessels in many places, you know, think Paul again. And uh, touching the flesh of the sacrifice equals holiness. And likewise, the act of reproduction itself, where two become one flesh, um, that's instituted and commanded by God, and thus that is also holy. But the broken vessels that we are, uh, we have to have the sin um, surrounding this washed clean. Um, and thus we have the laws about the, the clothes, which we are understood to regard our shame, um, and how those need to be washed clean. We have to be washed clean of shame. We have to be washed clean of the uh, imperfections in our lives. We have to be washed clean of the sins of our flesh. And all of these commandments kind of culminate in this section here, which means that it's good and it's holy to have these reproduction, uh, reproductive acts, but it requires um, these strict laws around our lives, ourselves, our shame, all of this. Uh, it requires the purification of sacrifice. It requires being uh, ultimately joined through sacrifice to the one who gives life, who is the source of all life, God himself. So I don't think that with this chapter that you may or may not have read, which goes on and on about all sorts of um, bodily emissions, is about um, reproduction being bad or being evil. But instead, it's meant to orient us towards the good of reproduction, um, the commandment to go forth and multiply. And instead, we're meant to purify this uh, through the means which, which it offers, principally uh, the sacrifice, the sacrificial acts, the joining with God as a source of all life, and the purification of our flesh, of um, our clothing, and our lives. So I kind of I whipped through that one quick. But um, yeah, if you are following along and reading um, Leviticus with me, uh, that is fantastic. Let me know if you are doing uh, that. Let me know if you're enjoying these episodes. As I said from the top of the episode, I am considering uh, ending at the end of Lent. So if you want me to do that, let me know. And if you don't want me to do that, let me know. And I will count the number of emails and uh, we're putting it to a vote. We are putting it to a vote, guys. So if more of you want me to do other episodes, I'll do that. I'll leave it up to you guys. As always, God bless you guys in your week. Thank you for listening. Share this with your friends. Please write a review on whatever platform you're listening to. And uh, I'll talk to you on the next episode. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. We are in part five of Leviticus. That's right. You made it thus far. So thanks for tagging along as I go through, um, let's see, I think we're covering four chapters. We'll be beginning in chapter 16, talking about the Day of Atonement. This is um, very good timing because this has landed right before Easter at the time of recording, which means um, we're kind of going to hear the Old Testament equivalent of Easter. This is a once a year celebration whereby the sins of the entire nation are cleared. Um, yeah, so we'll be drawing a couple parallels along the way. Without any further ado, let's begin. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over 
the atonement cover. Now, much has been said about the uh, the renting of the curtain that happened at the crucifixion. And it's often Protestants who point out that this means that we now have an unencumbered access to God at all points. And listen, I think that's a fair reading, but there's more going on here. There wasn't a uh, prohibition on coming to God in the Old Testament. That's not really how it worked. And it also wasn't just for priests. Reminder, Abraham, not really a priest, right? It's before the Mosaic Covenant anyway. Isaac, not a priest. Jacob, not a priest. Um, The prophets, all not priests. They were prophets. Um, King David, Solomon, not priests, but we see them going to God, going to God in prayer. Even, uh, I mean, Moses, right? Not a priest, and yet he sees God when he's hidden in the cleft of the rock. So access to God was not forbidden in the Old Testament, and now only because the curtain is rent um, allowed in the New Testament age. Not quite. I think what's more important here is this. All the people I named were righteous people, were friends of God, were people who did hold to the law. And recall the context of the sons of Aaron who um, who got destroyed, who were killed, and I think that was an episode or two ago. Was it just because they came at the wrong time? Well, not really. There was a lot of things going through. I think I gave uh, four or five different possible reasons which have been suggested, one of which is they may have been drunk Um, Another is that they were supposed to go alone, but then they went together, so they broke that law. There's a litany of things that they did wrong, and they were destroyed. So when this veil is torn, what I think is really saying is that not just the worthy, but now also the unworthy are allowed to come to God. That it's not just the people who are friends of God, but even the enemies of God can come to him and be made friends. Um, And this fits with Jesus's earthly ministry. He says, it's not the healthy who need medicine, but it's the sick. It's not the righteous who need me. It's the sinner. So I think that the, the curtain began to rip at the very beginning of Christ's ministry as he went out to the people who could never have approached God. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. And we've already commented that the priestly garments, this one-piece linen garment, seems to be what's being referenced at the crucifixion when Christ is wearing a garment which cannot be divided, so instead the lots are cast. So he is our high priest in um, in this sense for sure. All right, so they sacrifice a few goats and whatnot, and then we have um, what I think is pretty famous, the scapegoat, right? That's something we talk about in common language. And this is where, picking up on verse 7, then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. 
but the goat chosen by the lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atoning by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, not here in Leviticus, but either later on or certainly in Deuteronomy, we learn that what this goat encounters is um, Elza something, a name of a goat demon, right? Who might actually be Satan himself out in the wilderness. That's who he, this goat uh, is sent to. Um, but Reformed theologians really like to point to this section as evidence of what they call the double transfer. The idea that the sinfulness of us are transferred to Christ and his holiness is credited to us. It's a legal exchange of guilt and merit. But it's just kind of in name only. God acts as if we are holy and acted as if Christ was unholy. Now, I do understand where they could get this from here, but like the last part that I was criticizing, I don't think this tells the whole story. There's a lot of other things going on. Um, one is, I think what it's really pointing to, more than just this double transfer narrative, which I think is a bit strained, is that this is sending evil back from whence it came. It's saying, we have a holy city where we worship God, where we offer sacrifice, where we abide by God's holy law. And when we put the sin on this goat, we say sin does not belong here. It belongs in the desert, in the place of death. More than that, um, this goat is, ch well, there's some very clear um, Christ parallels here, if you haven't seen them already. One, uh, the Urim and the Thurim are how this goat is chosen. And we learned in an early episode, this is God's will is understood through the Urim and the Thurim. So God is choosing this goat, choosing him to go out into the wilderness. And then he goes out into the wilderness where he meets Azazel, or Satan, possibly. So what does that mirror? Well, the first enormous step in our redemption, where Jesus, at his baptism, whereby he identifies with the sinfulness of man, which is similar to the speaking of the sins over this goat. And then he's, he has this choosing moment whereby God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God speaks from heaven saying, you are chosen, Jesus, though he was chosen before the foundation of the world, but it's announced to all people there. And it says the spirit drives him into the wilderness where he meets, yes, you guessed it, he meets the devil. So Jesus then battles evil at the source. So this is predicting a future battle of Jesus against the devil, which is crucial to our redemption. That's something that the fathers pointed out, that this is the beginning of the great salvific work proper it's a vital part of our redemption. It's what uh, Christ uh, is talking about when he says that the strong man must bind the um, bind the, the the ruler of the house, right, and then he can plunder his his possessions. This is where 
Christ is binding the strong man. It's this battle in the desert where the Logos, the truth himself, confronts the father of lies, where the author and perfecter of our faith meets the tempter himself, and where each class of temptation is confronted and defeated. Um, and I think I've, I've done an entire podcast, at least a lot of it, just on the temptation of the desert. So we're going to leave that one be for now and keep moving on. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. He is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense shall conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. <clears throat> we know from Revelation, with the unveiling of what's happening in heaven, that in the tabernacle of heaven, we now have incense being offered up, which is the prayer of the people. And at this point in the day of atonement, we have the high priest entering in, and the people gather around and are in prayer during this time. So the giant handfuls of incense which he's offering represent the prayers of the people. And look at their function. And it's vital. It is actually to protect him from death. That it conceals. It um, fills this whole house up with, with this. It protects him from death. And this is a serious concern. Famously, there are the bells which are attached to his garments that um, if they stop ringing, he stops moving around. They take a, they use the rope that they earlier tied to his, his foot and they pull him back out because he could have died. So what this says in our present age is that our priestly class must be protected by prayer. In many times in this podcast, I have uh, busted on our priests because I think, with few exceptions, they do a terrible job. And yes, I know I have lots of priests listening. We have some um, in Japan, some in Korea. We have some in Switzerland. We have some in uh, the Angelicum of Rome. I know a lot of you guys are listening. So um, yes, but I'm honest. I think generally priests don't do a good job. But I don't want to land the blame on priests today. I want to land it on the laity. It is the laity's job. It is the prayers of the people that protect the priest. So if you are upset, as I am, about the state of the priesthood, that they're not confronting the evils in our culture, they're not being brave and courageous, they're not offering the sacraments, they're, they're, they're caving to different pressures, they're whatever. Well, guess what? That is our duty to protect them with our prayer. And if we don't, they could be struck down. The penalties to being a priest who does things wrong are very, very high. And we have to protect them through prayer. So, um, big reminder there I, I want to I put in. But let's move on a little bit. We have... Um, we have the sprinkling of the, the blood, and it goes on in this latter section. 
uh, covering that. And I think we may have talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, they sprinkle it seven times. And this is made to, uh, to, to make atonement, right? The sprinkling of the blood seven times. Now, Peter, who becomes the high priest when, when Jesus ascends, asks Jesus, how many times should we forgive? And Jesus replies, seven times seven. And seven is this number which is deeply baked into the priestly action of atonement. It's where you splash the blood seven times. You touch the horns of the altar seven times. What it means is that our forgiveness is a priestly act whereby we make atonement for the other person's sin. We actually cancel out their debt. That's why it's seven times seven, right? It's because it's mercy upon mercy, forgiveness upon forgiveness, atonement upon atonement. Now, this section goes on a little bit to talk about our favorite goat again, who's going off to a remote place. I think there's a few things we could point out here. One is, although we have a strong community element, everybody is gathered around, everybody has their vital role on the Day of Atonement. When it comes to the battling and confrontation of sin, the reality is, Although we can be supported by one another, and we just read about about that, the battle itself happens one-on-one, us versus Satan, us versus our sinful flesh. Um, And that's why it's in a remote place. That's where the battle of sin always happens. Ultimately, it happens in our heart, the place where only us and God um, can step. Another thing that I want to point out is, The recognition in the battle against sin and temptation happening in the wilderness in large part is because the wilderness is the place where a lot of the goods of community and family and friendship and just the plain old goods of creation have been withdrawn. We all know that when we're really comfortable and just generally happy, it kind of blinds us to certain sins. For instance, gluttony. When you're just eating Doritos off your belly, You're not really thinking about gluttony because you're enjoying the goodness of the created order. Mm, That's the first time Doritos have ever been called part of the created order. Anyways, um, the goodness of God's good creation can make us not understand the horror of sin and the depravity of the evil that we often engage in. But in the desert, when these good things are stripped away, this comes into focus. That's why Lent, the season which we are in right now, um, is the uh, is a playing out of what Jesus did in the 40 days of the desert. And it comes right before Easter, right? Because it comes before the ultimate atonement. All right. Um, let's jump on to verse 23. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the holy place. He is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. 
The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterwards, he may come into the camp, the bull and the goat for the sin offerings whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, intestines are to be burned. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. Here's what I want you to call to mind after reading that section, which didn't seem important. Recall the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the two characters who weren't so good, both were in the priestly class. One is said to be a priest and the other just generically a Levite. What did they not want to do? Well, they were outside of their, their normal place, right? They were not in the holy city yet. They were traveling about. They were outside of the camp. And they see this bloodied person, this bloodied body. Priests are meant to go outside of the camp at times and to deal with blood and guts and intestines and flesh and all of the horror and stink that's involved in the atonement for our sin. And these priests in the parables didn't want to do that. Instead of going out of the camp, like Hebrews stresses that Christ did for us in his day of atonement, instead of going out of the camp, they're going back into the camp. Instead of dealing with the blood and guts and gore of the person who is on the side of the road, they decide that they will be cleaner by not doing that, but nothing could be further from the truth. So often, all of us, not just priests, have to leave the safety security, and cleanliness of our nice, well-ordered lives, of our parishes, of our communities, and go out and contend with the messiness of death and evil and sin, and not get it on us, but instead wash ourselves and then return back home to be charged up again because we are not meant to be a city which is exclusionary. We're meant to be a city on a hill that draws people in, and where we make missionary journeys out to draw people back in. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and do, and do not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord... You will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is appoint, who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as the high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Look at how closely connected Sabbath is to atonement. Why? Why would the Day of Atonement be a Sabbath day? Well, what's distinctive about a Sabbath? We just read a little bit about it. You can't do any work. So what is this telling us? Well, sorry, Pelagians and semi-Pelagians, but work is not even allowed on the Day of Atonement. It's not our work that makes us holy, that clears our sin. Nothing could be clearer from here. This lands on a Sabbath day. 
So what things can we do on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus reminds us uh, when he says, are you to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And later he says that uh, if we have an animal that falls into a pit, we can take it out. Jesus puts mud on the eyes of the blind on the Sabbath to open their eyes. He restores the withered hand on the Sabbath. Uh, in the grain fields, he tells them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. So what can we do on the Sabbath? Well, we can show Mercy, right? Mercy towards the blind. Mercy towards the person with the withered hand. Mercy to the hungry in those fields. Mercy even to the animal in the pit. It's all about mercy. That's what Sabbath is about. So what's he trying to tell us here? I think it's that on the Day of Atonement, this is the day that God shows mercy to us. So what can we then respond with? Showing mercy to others. Because these are the two great commandments. Love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor. It's not that we loved him first, but he first loved us. So he clears us of our sin through mercy. He is the, the rich man who held a debt against us, but canceled it all. And the proper response is not to go and then demand the debts from our neighbor, but to forgive them and to show mercy to those people. <clears throat> so the Day of Atonement was replaced by Christ's death and resurrection. It says here that um, this will be a lasting ordinance for you. And I know there's a bit of a tension, it seems. Does the law continue forever or does it pass away? Some parts seem to be in place. Some parts are gone. Well, often people quote the, the passage that says, um, not a jot or a tittle will ever pass away. And then they forget the rest of that verse, which says, until it all has been fulfilled. So the parts which get fulfilled, well, they, quote, pass away. But they only pass away in one sense. To put my Thomas hat on, we have to make a distinction. Something can persist, something can be everlasting, either in its own substance or in its effects. And I think in this case, the Day of Atonement is everlasting in its effects, because Christ's death and resurrection affects a forgiveness which no longer has to be repeated year to year, but is everlasting. So this jot and this here tittle goes away because it is fulfilled, not destroyed, so that Christ makes this come to its final flowering, and then the effects of it, grown up into the messianic age, are what continue forever and ever. Another thing I want to note here is that this is marked according to the year. And the year, of course, is based on the regular movement of the sun. And it's at the cross that the Gospels record that the sun is darkened. So the regular sign of day and night, season and year, is stopped for a moment. It's put on pause. And after that, 
the world forever after is seen in the light of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And rightly, our years are marked around the life of Christ ever since. Chapter 17. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the Israelites, and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, that person shall be guilty of bloodshed. They have shed blood and they must be cut off from the people. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices they now make in the open fields. They must bring them to the priest, that is, to the Lord, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as fellowship offerings. Now, before I became Catholic, I considered being Lutheran or Anglican. Both of these groups claim to have a valid Eucharist, though um, both uh, have a confused view of transubstantiation. The Anglicans are all over the place, and the Lutherans believe in what I think is metaphysically entirely irrational, which is consubstantiation. But nevertheless, they claim that there's a real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Now, let's assume for a minute that that was true. Well, here's the problem. Here in the law, which prefigures and in large part explains the new covenant, there is an absolute prohibition on setting up your own altar, making your sacrifices your own. They must be connected with a valid priesthood. Quote, they must bring them to the priest. That is to the Lord. So the Catholic claim of persona Christi, that the priest stands in the place of Christ, is not coming out of nowhere. This is coming out of Leviticus, that the sacrificial act always will and always has been through a priest is baked into the very early pages of scripture here in Leviticus. The sacrifice, which is pleasing to God, this fellowship offering, which is fulfilled in the Eucharist, is at a place of God's own choosing through God's priesthood and is an affront to him. It counts as a shedding of blood that cuts you off from the people if you break this fellowship by bringing it to your own private place of sacrifice. Verse 6. The priest is to splash the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting and burn the fat as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols to whom they prostrate them, prostitute to themselves. There you go. Don't prostitute yourselves, guys. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and for the generations to come. So why the goat idol mention? Well, apparently a lot of scholars believe that this type of sacrifice is to the god Pan. Now, Pan goes by a variety of names, but this god seems to have been uh, worshipped in Egypt, um, also in Babylon, and it even got its way into the, the Greek pantheon at, at some point too. Yeah, not pantheon, but you get it. So he's often represented by a goat demon, and he's seen as the god of lust and sexuality. 
He can also give you an increase in your flocks and herds because, well, hey, God of lust and sexuality, those those herds will get a multiplying. And he'll make you thereby quite wealthy while showing you a good time along the way. This um, is quite explicitly the enemy of true worship because it begins when we deny the authentic priesthood, we refuse communion with God and neighbor in the context of right worship and turn and we're carrying through our, our don't go and uh, do sacrifices outside of the fellowship, which is ordained by God. So this is one big section that shows that the enemy of true worship, right, is denying the authentic priesthood, refusing communion with God and neighbor in the context of right worship, a turn towards a privatized and not corporate and covenantal religion. And this comes to where we are placing lust, wealth, pleasure, convenience, security, all in the place of God. Um, Recall the abode of the goat demon is the desert. That has been made very, very clear when we send off the goat and say, go and be with the goat demon guy over there. It's out of the holy city. It's over into the desert. Yet, Pan is promising wine and food and joy. (coughs) But the direction that Pan leads is to the wilderness and back to Egypt. Back to the place where the Israelites likely learned this type of demonic worship to begin with. So, this is a lie. This is a clear um, um, illusion that he's offering. It's why we say, it's in the baptismal vows, that I reject Satan and all his empty promises. Because that's what Satan has been offering from the beginning, is empty promises. Think Garden of Eden. Think um, the worship of Pan. I'm going to give you plenty. Come with me out into the wilderness. I'm going to make you free and happy. Let's go in the direction of slavery in Egypt. Verse 8. Say to them, any Israelite or any foreigner residing among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, who does not do it at the tent of meeting, um, will be cut off from the people. I will set my face against any Israelite or foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. For the life of its creature, of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's sins, or for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor make any foreigner residing among you eat blood. Any Israelite or foreigner residing among you who hunts any animal or bird may be, uh, that may be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with earth, because the life of every creature is its blood. That is why I've said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is in its blood. Anyone who eats it will be cut off. And we've been referencing our Protestant friends many times. And this is something which is pointed out by them that, hey, how can you have the Eucharist with a real blood sacrifice that you drink of that's obviously in opposition to the law? How would Christ institute a... um, new uh, covenant in his blood, which we drink of when that is so prohibited, it's not even funny. Well, here's why. Does Christ make atonement for us? Yea or nay? 
The, the answer is yes, yes. He is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, which this is the context of it. Um, and what does it say here? It says that this blood is given to us to make atonement. So the way that we're participating with Christ is by entering into that atoning life in his blood. And I've said on many podcasts that it debases human beings to participate in the life of an animal. But for the same reason that we shouldn't mingle our life with something which is lower, that's the reason why we ought to mingle our life with the God-man himself, because that draws us higher. It connects us with his life. He condescends to us to bring us up into the Trinitarian life, and he does that through his atoning blood, through his life. Adding a few other things here. This could possibly be um, part of the worship of false gods, the drinking of blood that's fairly likely. Um, we uh, we kind of picked up on some similar things over in the New Testament, right? That's one of the early prohibitions is you have to abstain from blood. And um, that's in the same breath as the food sacrifice to idols. And um, it seems that that could be involved in some demonic worship, though I haven't dug terribly deep into that. So I invite you guys to do and let me know. Um, but I want to point something else out here, which I think is particularly interesting. So the blood is for atonement. I, it's this life is for atonement. And atonement, we talked about earlier, is all about mercy. Mercy first, God to us, and then us to neighbor. Okay? So, the lives of these animals were given to them to show mercy towards one's neighbor because God first showed mercy. And what is the worship of Pan about? Well, it's about the opposite. It's about an increase for oneself. And it's about indulging and being gluttonous and being riotous and being drunk. Okay, so that's the opposition. That's the abuse of this sacrifice. So we have these animals. There's a right way to use them. And then we have a wrong way. And all of this mirrors Christ picking right up uh, something Corinthians. Okay, when you come together, is it not, uh, it is not really to, when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you proceeds to eat his own supper. So you're broken off the community as it condemned earlier. And one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. So it's supposed to be an act of mercy to one's neighbor, but you leave your neighbor hungry. And the opposite of right worship is this worship of Pan as contrast in the Day of Atonement. And uh, that's where you specifically become drunk. So, and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have households to eat and drink? Or do you show contempt for the house of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I condemn you? In this matter, I do condemn you. Well, I do not condemn Oh, goodness. I can't read this part. It's a struggle to read Paul because you got to modulate the teaching voice with the angry, what on earth are you doing voice. Um, and it goes on to talk about how they're profaning the body and blood of Christ by their abuse of the Eucharistic sacrifice. 
So look at all the ways that it mirrors here. I think I pretty much named them here. We have the lack of mercy. We have the riotous behavior. We have the, the indulging, the gluttony, the drunkenness. Um, all of that is basically the evil perversion of the Day of Atonement uh, sacrifices, which we are in the context of, though this is also inclusive of the uh, fellowship offerings. All right, picking up on verse 15. Anyone, whether native-born or foreigner, who eats anything dead or torn apart by wild animals must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be ceremonially unclean until evening, then they will be clean. But if they do not wash their clothes and bathe themselves, they will be held responsible. I don't know exactly what to say about this passage, but I will tell you what um, was kind of swirling around in my head. Maybe you guys can put it together. You're very smart. Um, in the story of Samson, we have, he meets a lion, he tears it apart, later he goes by, and he sees that there's honey inside of its carcass, and he eats some of the honey. He offers this as a riddle to some people at a wedding, where he says, uh, what is it, uh, out of the, out of, I don't remember, something, 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 whatever, so they can't answer the riddle, and uh, what was supposed to be the reward is a variety of things, including all of these new um, clean clothes. And uh, what this seems to mirror is the part that we were talking about earlier in the Gospels, where Jesus defeats the devil. So we have him walking through the wilderness, just like Samson. He meets the um, the lion, right? Satan's described as a roaring lion seeking who, uh, who may, he may devour. And then Samson, empowered by the Spirit of God, defeats the lion and Jesus defeats the tempter. And then later on, out of this thing which ought to have destroyed us, we find God's sweet provision, his grace itself. That's what honey and uh, wild fruits often re uh, represent. God's um, provision, his sweetness, his grace just given to us. We didn't work for it. It's just given to us. And then it turns to this great riddle. And the only way to solve the riddle, Samson tells us, is if you had plowed with my plow, right? If you had been working my fields, um, then you would have seen it and you would have known the riddle. And this mirrors what we see in the salvation narrative that, hey, you'll understand and know of the grace which is on offer when we follow Christ in his work. At which point, we are given these new clothes in baptism, we are bathed with water, made clean, made rich, and we enter into this um, wedding ceremony in this, in this way. What I see here are a bunch of parallels. We have um, nobody can eat of anything found dead or torn apart by wild animals. And then it goes directly into this washing of clothes and then becoming clean. So it has the three main parts. And I think it's a bit of a stretch to kind of connect into it. But um, whereas the law says anything found dead or uh, torn apart by wild animals is unclean, 
we have death itself is the ultimate uncleanliness, right? We reminded that in the earlier episodes where it talks about finding these dead animals. And this is, I mean, referencing that. But out of death comes this sweet provision of grace. We're reminded in the words of Paul that he conquered over death by death. Oh, death, where is your sting? So there's this way in which Christ reaches down into what should have destroyed us and then pulls out a grace for us that then undoes death itself. So I hope that made some amount of sense. All right. Um, we are jump. We're going to jump past a lot of stuff here. Um, I mentioned earlier how um, uh, Pan is the god of sex and fertility and things like that. So it should come as no surprise that the next section, so Leviticus 18, is all about unlawful sexual relations. This is still the condemnation of some of these false types of worship. I'm not going to go into all of them because I think you you guys probably know them well. Um, I'll just be zeroing on a one or two. There's lots of do not do this, do not do that. What I want to jump in on is in verse 21, where it says, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, note the justification. This is not your typical pro-life argument, though I very much like the typical pro-life arguments. Instead, this, instead of centering around the uh, human dignity, it actually actually raises this sin from just a sin against another person to a profaning of God himself. Christ reminds us that as you have done to one of these little ones, you have done to me. So in this act, the God, the author of life, is assaulted by the sacrifice of his children. Um... This is a particularly grievous sin. Not too many are said to profane the name of God himself, but this is one of them. Um, it's also an offense against human dignity, of course. Um, it is also one that our nation is deeply, deeply involved in. Oh, the next one's a very unliked verse, speaking of our modern society, and that is, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Other, other King James says abomination, right? So, uh, um, it says it right there, right? <clears throat> Often we're told, oh, that's not really in the Bible. No, that's not really what it means. I think that is as clear as possible. Now, note, it doesn't say if somebody has these urges or inclinations. No. It says if somebody does this act, that is detestable. That's wrong. Um, now, some people have tried to wiggle around this. Well, we don't follow all the different laws in the Bible. I mean, a lot of this passed away. We don't do the sacrifices. Right. Nothing leaves the law unless it is fulfilled. So the sacrifices are fulfilled. The things which um, cause the uh, Israelites to have a group identity well, that is fulfilled because the covenant has now been extended out to Gentiles. It did its work. It preserved the, um, the law and the prophets and the histories. It modeled what would eventually come about in the Messianic age. And now that we're in it, there's no need to have 
a singular nation which is chosen because this invitation has gone out to all the earth. So this has not passed away. There is no sense in which it is no longer detestable or abominable. This is clearly a moral law which has a descriptor attached to it that does not reference anything that would then pass away. So I don't think there's any way to actually wiggle out of this. All right. Um, we have a few more things. Um, don't define yourselves in a variety of ways. Um, here we go. So because of a lot of these things, it says the people before um, the nations earlier in the land had uh, even defiled the land. So I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. You must keep my decrees and my laws, the native-born and the foreigners residing among you. You must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. I do want to point out that we often focus on things like homosexuality, that's bad. But note, all of the one bazillion sexual relations which are prohibited are grouped under detestable acts. These are all detestable. So I'm sure you're detestable, I'm detestable, we're all detestable in different ways. Um, but uh, yes, that's that's why we need to save you guys. Uh, we don't pick on specific groups. Um, the scripture is quite clear that justice ought to be applied to um, foreigner and native, to rich and to poor. Um, with uh, God is no respecter of men. The other thing I want to point out here is all of this language about the land as this actor. I think the land is often a stand-in for the natural order that God has given his creation. So the land is obviously not a moral actor. The land is not a conscious being. But being a creature of God, it does cooperate with God. Um, and it does so by vomiting the people out of the land, meaning the natural order that God gave creation means that when we act against his plan, particularly in the context of perverting sexuality and thus assaulting the basic unit of the family, that will cause destruction inevitably. <clears throat> Anyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not do any of the detestable customs that you were practicing before you came and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. These last lines, I am the Lord your God. This is the beginning of holiness, the recognition of God. And Leviticus is a book about holiness. It its caption should be how to be holy. And here it shows the motivation and the justification for holiness, which is the reality and the identity of the one true God. So in a culture rampant with sexual immorality, abuses of human dignity, individual sacrifices for private advantage and, and personal gain, we ought to start where God started if we want our neighbors to leave slavery, to not turn back to the desert, to not follow the goat demon, to huff back to slavery. We need to start with the reality and the identity of God above all else. 
And from there, we can then create a community of free people which engage in proper worship and therefore can invite other people into this to have their sin removed and their souls cleansed. That's the Exodus narrative, though. I mean, that's how it began. That's how the whole shebang started, is God reveals himself to Moses. He speaks his name. He tells him the relation he has to this people. Then he carries this message out to the elders of Israel and says that we need to leave in order to do proper worship. And then they become free. They become a people. Then they become a city on the hill. Okay, let's take a brief break here, and then we're going to jump into Leviticus 19. And there's some really cool things. There's kind of a mishmash of different stuff in here, even some interesting economic laws, which we'll drill into.